Well, the core of this morning's message in the Gospel of John is worship. And so Grant and I thought it might be profitable to switch things up just a bit this morning and to, to, to preach all the way through the message, let that till our hearts a little bit, and we will do all of our singing, our extended time of worship on the backside. So just a heads up, because I know how church people love their routines. <laughs> it's true, right? There's going to be more than two or three songs at the end of the sermon, so uh, just get your hearts ready for that. Sound okay? All right. Let me start with one of my favorite quotes from, from John Piper. Uh, Piper is excellent, very strong and helpful on the idea of what it means to treasure Christ in your heart. And I've always loved this, this quote, and it works perfectly for this message. Here's what he writes. It's a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. When the value of his perfections and the intensity of our affections correspond. Now make it personal. Does your love for Jesus this morning match how worthy he is of your praise? Does the intensity of your affections for him correspond with how perfectly glorious he is? Now, my, my guess is the answer to both those questions is I wish it were better. And that's, and that's true of me as well. So we all have something to learn from this morning's text. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to the end of John chapter 11. The end of chapter 11. I mentioned at the end of last week's message that these last three verses in chapter 11 really belong at the head of chapter 12. Again, not calling into question the inspiration of Scripture, the divisions and the little verse numbers, that was not inspired by God. That was added much, much later on. So don't, don't get into a panic. But these last three verses belong at the top of chapter 12 because they set the stage for what's coming next. And that is... Jesus' final entry into the city of Jerusalem and the final stage of his earthly life and ministry before he goes to the cross. So remember where we've been uh, here in chapter 11? Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and that is the seventh and final sign that John has given to us, the readers, to prove that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. God the Son, God in the flesh, one with the Father in every way, and now we see the one who has all authority and power over both life and death. And this, this jaw-dropping, very public event where a man dead for four days suddenly shuffles out of the tomb, it caused every witness who was there that day to take one of two paths. And this was a big idea from last Sunday, right? John says, many saw this and they believed, right? And we all look at that and go, that is a no-brainer. This was a man dead four days but John still makes the point, many believed, they saw it, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah, and that he is the very Son of God. But others did the exact opposite. What did they do? They snitched. Remember we talked about it? They ran straight to the Pharisees and they snitched on Jesus. And so that was one of the big ideas from last Sunday, that there are two camps. Jesus always divides people into one of two camps. You cannot remain neutral about Jesus. And that's, what, that's part of the message that we need to constantly share in this confused culture today. You cannot remain neutral. You're either for him or you are against him. He is either Lord, in which case you'll worship him, or he's a threat to the idols of your heart, in which case you'll want him removed. And that's exactly what the Sanhedrin decided. Remember, they held this emergency meeting, and they reasoned that Jesus has to die. Better that one man die. 
in order to pacify Rome, to appease the Romans, and to save the nation of Israel. And thus, it became just too dangerous for Jesus to remain in Jerusalem with his followers. And John tells us that for a time, they, they withdrew from the city and they went out to the outskirts of the wilderness to a place called Ephraim. But here's the thing. That retreat was just really a matter of buying time. Again, Jesus is well aware of the timing of everything that is coming. He is well aware that as the Lamb of God, it was ordained that he would die alongside the celebration of the Jewish Passover. And so with that, we come to verse 55, and here we see John bring this final Passover into view. Verse 55, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they're going up for this, this big feast uh, that's on the Jewish calendar. This is a big deal. They go up early, they go up to purify themselves. Verse 56, So they, the Jewish people, were seeking for Jesus. And they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him. So in today's world, in, in, the, in the, the vernacular of social media, we would say Jesus was trending at this moment. Okay, Everybody is talking about this mysterious prophet from Galilee. Have you seen him? Have you heard what he just did? Have you heard how he just raised Lazarus of Bethany back to life? Uh, the whispers are all around Jerusalem, but the question remains, will he dare show his face in Jerusalem at the Passover while this bounty is on his head? Everybody knew about it. And the way John phrases it there in verse 56 leads you to believe that as the people talk about this, they're thinking it would be nuts. It would be crazy for him to come to the feast while the temperature in the city is so hot. It would be basically walking into the clutches of the enemy, and nobody does that. But we know differently, don't we? Because we know the end of the story. We know the answer to that question. Who would do that? Only somebody who was committed to giving himself up on purpose. Only somebody who would intentionally come to Jerusalem and put himself within arm's distance of the very people that want to grab hold of him. He must be doing this intentionally. Let's over to, turn over to chapter 12 now. Chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So, so they have now left the wilderness. They've come back to, I mean, I guess you could call it the scene of the crime, back to Bethany, the very place where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Notice now Jesus is walking straight into danger, not retreating from it. And Bethany is going to serve as the perfect place, the sort of the, the headquarters for him uh, during the Passover week, a place that's close by that he can retreat to, be with friends, and not stay in the city itself. Now, it seems like if you look at the, the time frame of all this, that Jesus probably came back and traveled and arrived in Bethany on Friday, making sure to travel before sundown, before the beginning of the Sabbath. In fact, I'm going to give you a, a timeline. You knew I would do this, right? Um, I know that's kind of small, but we're going to work through this in the rest of the series as we walk through the major events of Passion Week. Okay, So you can see from Sunday to Sunday, the triumphal entry to the empty tomb, and the two days before that is what we're covering in our passage for this morning. Jesus probably arrives in Bethany on Friday, and now we're going to look at this. And by the way, he would have enjoyed a wonderful Sabbath rest with the very man he raised from the dead. Can you imagine? He, he, he enjoys that. And now they're going to sit down the next evening on Saturday for this very special meal. Look at verse 2. 
So they made him a supper there in Bethany, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So our best understanding is this is sort of a dual celebration meal. First of all, celebrating Jesus, that's obvious. But also celebrating the fact that Lazarus is actually and really alive again. He is sitting at the table in the middle of the party. Can you imagine how surreal that would have been? I'm a guy that you just buried. He, you watched him die, you buried him in a tomb, and now he's sitting at the party with you. This is an incredibly surreal scene. Now, John doesn't tell us who the host of the dinner is, but both Matthew and Mark say the dinner took place at the home of a man named Simon the leper. And that's all we know about this guy. His name is Simon. He must have lived there in Bethany. And at some point in his life, he must have had this, this skin condition known as leprosy. And by the way, can you imagine being known? Your nickname is your name plus your most <laughs> obvious disease. I probably shouldn't have said that because now your mind is thinking and don't do it, okay? But that's what he's known as, Simon the leper. Now, had Jesus healed him? Listen, if he was a leper still, he wouldn't be hosting a dinner party. So I think it's likely that Jesus had. We're not told, but it's likely that he did. Because remember, here's a guy who is hosting a wanted man in his home for dinner. It's likely that Simon, in some sense, felt indebted to Jesus for something. So it's likely that Jesus had healed him. We know that the 12 disciples are there with Jesus. And notice in verse 2 who is serving. It's Martha, of course, right? Putting her gift of hospitality into action. And we're about to find out that Mary is present as well, and she really is going to play the central role in this part of the story. Now, I've already mentioned that both Matthew and Mark record this same event in their gospel writings. You'll find them in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, and all three accounts provide a different set of unique details that we can piece together. By the way, just as a point of clarification, I know I mentioned this earlier but it, it bears repeating. There is a similar story in Luke chapter 7, but it is completely disconnected from this particular story. It is not the same thing at all, and this has been a source of confusion for Christians for, for a very, very long time, for centuries. In Luke 7, there is a story of Jesus sitting down to have a, a, a meal with a Pharisee named Simon. Same name, not Simon the leper, but Simon the Pharisee. And that would not be unusual because Simon was a very common Jewish name in that day. But in that meal, in Luke chapter 7, it takes place in Galilee, not in Bethany of Judea. And it happened about a year before the crucifixion. So that, so that event is long in the past. What's so confusing about it is in Luke's story, this thing that happened a year ago, there is also a woman who anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, just as Mary is about to do. And so we've got it all uh, jumbled up in, in, into a mess, but they're two completely different stories. Just know that. Okay, back to verse three. Here's the key verse in our story for this morning. Verse three. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So what I want to do is walk through some of the important details here and then we'll come back and we'll see why what Mary did in this moment is so important and how that impacts the way we worship Jesus. First of all, a couple more differences between the accounts of Matthew and Mark and with what John gives us here. As I said, Matthew and Mark mention the name of the host, the host home, Simon the leper. But interestingly, they don't mention the name of Mary. In their account, she remains anonymous. 
Matthew and Mark both mention that Mary brings out this perfume in a, a very specific container, an alabaster vial. But John doesn't make many, any mention at all of what the container looked like. Both Matthew and Mark specifically say that Mary anointed Jesus' head with this perfume, but John emphasizes the fact that Mary anoints his feet. Now, whenever you come across an event like this and, and you have some differences in the story, the question is asked, well, why? Why the differences? And it's actually pretty simple and logical. When a group of people recalls details from an, an event that took place years ago, in this case, sometimes decades ago, they're going to remember things slightly differently from different angles. This would happen in, you can talk to a police officer who's ever taken a report from a bunch of eyewitnesses to a car accident. They all remember different parts of it. So a particular detail will stand out to one person, but not to another. So for Matthew, probably the generosity of Simon the leper that night must have made him remember that Simon was the host. But John, writing 25 to 30 years after Matthew, he thinks Mary deserves the central role in the story, so he doesn't, he doesn't mention Simon's name, but mentions Mary's name, because to him, that's the most important part of the account. Mark emphasizes the anointing of Jesus' head, and that makes sense, because the anointing of the head represents kingship. But for John, the greatest impression in his, in his mind was the humility of Mary as she sat at Jesus' feet. So the anointing of the head drips down all, through, all across his body, down to his feet. So this is not unusual when you see people writing down history. Eyewitnesses always notice different things. Now here's the objection that comes from this. Sometimes people go, yeah, but Jeff, you keep telling us that it's the Holy Spirit who guides these men as they, as they write. So if the Holy Spirit is guiding them, why aren't they writing the exact same things? And here's the reality. If they had done that, skeptics would still object. They would say, well, all of them are in collusion with one another. That, that, that's one of the objections, right? Or that these men just functioned like robots. The Spirit was moving, literally moving their hand and their arm as they wrote. But we know that's not the case. Yeah, Scripture affirms that the Holy Spirit carried them along, but He did so using the unique personality and the unique perspectives and recollections of each of these men. So, and this really is one of the beautiful things about having four Gospels. You know, it's, it's the most important narrative in the entire Bible is the story of the life of Christ. So Jesus gives us four unique perspectives. And what we get to do is to collate all of that data and piece it together and there, thereby fill out the richness of the story of the life of Christ. And to see how each one of these authors saw different things in this story. And it really makes it much richer and much fuller for us as believers. So that's, that's sort of, we can piece it all together what was going on here and we know why the, the, the emphases were different in each account. Okay, let's do a quick analysis of the central item at the heart of this story, and that is the perfume. Picture the story now. Picture the scene, dinner party. All these folks are sitting around. They're reclining at the table, and it seems like right in the middle of it, maybe even right in the middle of the meal itself, Mary brings out what John describes as a pound of a very cost, costly perfume of pure nard. Now, anybody got nard in their house? We, we tend to not know what that is, but I'll, sh I'll show you a picture. You know I was going to show you a picture, right? It is an amber-colored extract that comes from a particular plant that is very rare. In fact, it's found only in this part of the world, the Himalayan mountains. So in parts of China and Nepal and India. So 
think in ancient times, harvesting a plant like that from a remote location, processing it, then bringing it to Israel would make it very, very rare and very costly. And Mary has a Roman pound of it. Uh, This is extraordinary. We're talking about a 12-ounce vial of this very costly perfume. It's enough to fill a full soda can. So she's got a lot of it. Now, later in the account, we're going to hear Judas, Judas the bookkeeper. We'll get to that in a second. He puts the total value of this, these 12 ounces of this nard this, as 300 denarii. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know that the average worker in ancient Israel was paid a single denarii for every day's worth of work. And if you take into account the Sabbath and all the festival days, the average Jewish worker in the first century worked about 300 days per year. So what Judas is saying, just to translate it, he's saying the value of this perfume is equal to an entire year's salary for the average worker in Israel. Now, I did the math on this this week, just so that we can understand what's happening here. Okay, here's what I found. The average hourly wage today in America for a worker, I hope this doesn't hurt anybody's feelings, it's $27.06. I don't know, maybe you make less than that. I don't know. But $27.06, and for an eight-hour day, that translates to about $216 every single day. The average employee in America doesn't work 300 days. He or she works about 260 days. So here's the value of the perfume that's being poured out in this story in our dollars, in our day. Are you ready? $56,000. worth of perfume in this particular scene. Now, I don't know how Mary came to possess it, where she got it from, right? And we're not told, so we really can't speculate. Remember, this was a prominent family in Judea, so they would have been fairly well off. But still, this is an extremely expensive item. Some scholars have looked at this and said, there's only a couple possibilities. This could have been a family heirloom that had been being passed down for generations. Some people say this was part of, I guess, their, their insurance plan or their investment portfolio. It was to be kept and only sold if absolutely necessary, if, if loss of life or something necessitated it. But here's the point you have to know. This vial of nard was supposed to be held onto in that culture. It should be held onto. Maybe, maybe you would consider pouring out a couple drops at a very, very special occasion. But to pour the entire thing out all at once, $56,000 worth, what would you have said? In that, imagine your sister doing that. Family money or your friend pouring out $56,000 worth of anything in one moment, just boom, just gone. Be honest, how would you have reacted? Before we look closer at Mary's decision in that, I want to look at Judas's reaction, because this is really important. Look at verse 4. Now, as we read what John writes beginning in verse 4, remember, John is writing, you know, decades after, uh, after this event, right? So he's writing in hindsight of what he knows Judas will eventually become. So you, got, you have to understand that, that he's, he now knows who Judas is, right? Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was what? He was a thief. 
And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Now, we could spend a lot of time today talking about Judas. We will as we get deeper into the Passion Week. But for today, what I want you to notice in this is that Judas successfully hid the darkness of his heart from his fellow disciples. He was able to hide it. And we're going to see this on display. You guys probably know this. But in the upper room, in that moment where Judas gets up to go betray Jesus, none of the disciples at the table think there's anything awkward happening. They don't recognize the nefarious motives of Judas. He has all of them fooled at this point. And the truth is, outward appearances can fool us, right? I can't tell you how many times in my more than 20 years of ministry experience, I thought I knew somebody, and it turns out I was fooled. I was just deceived. Folks who were hiding grave secret sins. Folks who were false teachers, who were quietly whispering in corners and teaching false things. People that turned out to be betrayers of Christ in the church. Yeah, it happens today. And Judas was one of these, a master of deception. So good at this that he was able to secure the position of the bookkeeper <laughs> and the treasurer. So when the money came in from alms or from uh, supporters making donations, Judas was the one who was in charge of this common purse. He's the one who saw, you know, this is what's given, this is what goes out. But the problem all along, John says in verse 6, is that he was a thief. And John uses the verb bastazo to describe what Judas did. The word itself means to carry off. And he writes it in their imperfect tense, which means it's something that was continually happening. Judas was habitually stealing from the purse of the disciples. And my guess is it probably started small, as sin usually does, right? Just take a little bit here, a little bit there, see if anybody notices. Maybe he borrowed a small amount for a personal expense and he just didn't pay it back. And then, you know what? He looked around and said, hey, nobody noticed that. And then it grew and he got bolder and he kept doing it and he thought he was getting away with it, that nobody would ever see it. And over time, guys, sin gets easier and easier if we let it fester. That's usually how sin works and how the enemy can get a foothold in our lives. But as the Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out right? Eventually everything comes to the surface, if not in this life, certainly in the life to come at the judgment seat of Christ. We should know that. All of us should know that everything will be laid bare in the end. So Judas, now picture this, sees Mary dump $56,000 worth of perfume on Jesus's feet, and you could almost hear the audible gasp in the room, right? <gasps> what is she doing? And it's true, while John points only to Judas as the one who voices the objection, Matthew and Mark add this little detail. They say, the disciples were indignant over this. Plural, the disciples, not just Judas. Judas might have been the leader of the choir in this, but they all joined in. And then look at the, this is where it gets really vile and really heinous. Judas uses the poor as a cover for his anger and a cover for his greed. It's as if he says, look, Mary, if we'd known you had this, $56,000, if we'd known you'd had this, if you'd only told us about this, we could have gone out and sold it and given to the poor. But was he really concerned about the poor? John says no in verse 6. Judas was concerned about lining his pockets from the purse. Imagine being a thief who's skimming off the, off the top of the account, and now you watch all that money being poured on a man's feet. <gasps> the opportunity lost. 
Judas doesn't love the poor. He doesn't love Jesus. He loves money. And no one can serve two masters. We know this, right? Jesus says either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And Judas wasn't the first person, and he's not the last either, to hide his greed behind a veil, a a thin veil of charitable concern for the poor. Many ministries, even today, they use use their charities as a, a cover for personal gain, for lining their pockets, for becoming extremely wealthy. And yeah, I'm talking about pastors and preachers and missionaries, people who outwardly look like they're serving God, but inwardly they're doing it all for the sake of their personal benefit, to line their pockets. And they walk in the sandals of Judas. They'll be judged accordingly by God for it. Now, it's interesting to note that in Mark's gospel, it says that this event, this this waste, I'm doing air quotes for the sake of the recording, this waste of this this perfume is ultimately the thing that pushes Judas to run to the religious authorities to turn Jesus in. Uh, It's so interesting to me that over the centuries, so many books have been written trying to figure Judas out. And, And I'm always amazed at how many people have tried to write as much as they can glowing things about Judas to sort of make an excuse for what he's done. I've never understood it. They'll write things like this. This is the, this is the, the line that often happens. Well, Judas was just trying to force Jesus' hand in establishing God's kingdom on the earth. So his heart was at least partially in the right place. I don't buy it. I don't think the scripture bears that out. Jesus himself calls Judas the son of perdition. He is marked out for this purpose. He is part of the band of believers, but he's never a believer. I think we have to understand that. He's not in any way moved by Mary's devotion to the Lord. That type of worship, in his mind, is a waste. It's a waste. That's throwing good money after bad. And I think what's really in the background of this, Judas hates to see all that money flush down the drain because that's a payday for him. A big payday, and it's now gone. That opportunity for him is now gone. Once again, people like this can be found in many churches today. They're part of a church body. Outwardly, they appear to be one of us, but the truth is their hearts are far from God. Their hearts are far from their fellow members. They've joined themselves to a church family, not to worship, not to serve, not to give, not to fellowship, but for some type of personal gain. It happens today. And ultimately, here's my, here's my take on, on, on what's going on with Judas. I think at this point in the story, he is, he is just done with Jesus' view of the kingdom. He's done with it. This was not the kingdom he signed up for. Think about this. A kingdom where costly things are just thrown onto people's feet. A kingdom where the, the guy in charge is literally walking into getting arrested by the authorities. To Judas, this whole enterprise appears to be doomed. Originally, he might have been enthusiastic for the mission, but that's long ago. Right now, there's nothing in it for him. He sees it as a failure. To use an old-fashioned phrase, he's about to swap horses in the middle of the race. Have you ever heard that phrase? He's about to bet on the Sanhedrin instead of Jesus because he sees this thing going south and he can't profit from it any longer. So he's going to bet on the Sanhedrin and try to get paid as he turns Jesus over to the authorities. Sad, sad story, right? Okay, let's get to the heart of the passage in terms of our lives. Let's go back to Mary. Let me start with this amazing statement. Okay, this comes from Matthew. 
I'm going to put this up on the screen. This is from Matthew's account of the story. Listen to the high praise that Jesus gives to Mary. Jesus looks around at these men who are, have just gasped at the fact that she, she poured out all this perfume. And he says, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now that statement should make every one of us sit up and take notice. That God the Son, the eternal word, points to a particular act of one of his followers and says, what Mary has done today has so adorned the gospel that it should never be forgotten. Wow, that's high praise. And I think this is what he means. If we understand the true nature of the gospel, it is going to lead us to a correct estimate of Jesus' glory and his worth. So using his parables as a word picture, if Jesus truly is the pearl of great price, if he truly is the treasure hidden in the field, it is never a waste to sell everything that you have to buy that pearl. Right? To find that treasure. His glory and his worth justifies you and I devoting everything that we have to him. Everything. And here's where we see yet another high-level contrast being drawn by the gospel writers. We've seen this so many times. You've got Mary's self-denial on one side, and you've got Judas's self-love. Two very different paths, two very different camps. No room for neutrality. Believer or unbeliever, life or death, that's the gospel. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, and for the sake of the gospel, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So look at the contrast. Mary denied herself by this extravagant gift of devotion. She lost all of that perfume in a matter of seconds. But she gained everything that truly mattered. Judas, on the other hand, loved only himself and the things of this world. He did gain 30 pieces of silver, but he forfeited his soul. Those are the paths, folks. That's it. Those are the two camps. Now, before we go any further, let's talk about worship in all of its forms, because this is something that we often read right past in this story. It's true in this story, Mary is the centerpiece of this picture of worship, but worship comes in all types of forms. And so we have to be careful. We th it, it, and you think about the word worship right now, something pops into your head, but that may very well just be a preference. And somebody else is wired differently in terms of their understanding of worship. So we've got to be careful we don't judge one another. I want you to see other forms of worship in this story. First of all, Martha is worshiping. I know Mary's the highlight, but notice that Martha is worshiping through her service. Now you may say, oh, come on. All she's doing is making the meal and serving it. <laughs> on Mother's Day... No, be really careful about saying things like that. Really careful. When it comes from a heart of love for Christ and for others, serving a meal is certainly worship. It's worship. Listen, we all know the principle from Romans 12, and, and Adam actually uh, referred to it earlier. I didn't even know he was going to do that. This idea that all of life is an act of worship, right? That we're constantly to be presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. That is our act of worship. Everything is, is worship. And everything has the potential to be worship. 
But it's true that there are certain moments where our worship is going to be concentrated in some form. And yes, serving Christ and serving his people is a prime example of that. Think about what happens every Sunday here at Oak Hill. I am so amazed. Every time I walk in here, I just walk in here and like, I'm ready to preach. But so many things have been done before I even arrive. People serving, people bringing chairs in, right? People are, are making coffee. We've got ushers and greeters ready. After their service, you'll see people wrapping cords. You're all having fun out there. They're in here wrapping cords, right? They're, they're putting things out in the storage. If that is done from a heart that loves Christ and loves his people, it's worship. It's worship. So we've got to get that right, right? If we're doing things unto the Lord and not unto self, not to check a box, not to say, ooh, look what I'm doing, then it's an act of worship. Genuine love for Christ and his people in any form of service is worship. Now, we know there's another occasion where Martha failed at this, right? So, so make sure you see the difference. This one comes from Luke 10. Martha tried to serve Jesus on another occasion, and it went all terrible, didn't it? Why? She was anxious, and she was worried, and she's stressed out. She's trying to do too much, and it actually caused her to lose her temper, and she rebuked Jesus. Not worship. <laughs> no, 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 not worship, right? But here in Simon the leper's house, my guess is she is filled with love for Jesus here, and she is not stressed. She is rejoicing with her sister over the return of Lazarus. So Martha is worshiping in a way that she's wired to worship. That's who she is before the Lord. And so she employs that gift of hospitality, employs that gift of service, and she worships Christ. Praise the Lord for that, right? Secondly, this one's going to shock you, Lazarus is worshiping through fellowship. Now, come on, Jeff, he's just sitting there. He's just reclining at the table, right? No, he's basking in the presence of of the Lord. He's basking in his prayer. He's in fellowship with Jesus. Listen, you know what was going on there. Lazarus not drawing attention to himself and just listening to the master. Lord, teach me. Lazarus sitting there. I was dead a few days ago. <laughs> I mean, right? Just recalling the goodness of the Lord and the grace in his life, his power. Is that not what we do when we retreat to our inner room to pray when we when we're in a specific moment of fellowship with god through prayer when we open up the word and we meet christ in the scriptures is that not an act of worship when we listen to the word proclaimed on a sunday morning or we sing amazing theological truths in praise to the lord it's worship it's worship we're basking in the presence of christ and we're doing it together as a church family that pleases him. It's worship. Okay, let's look at Mary then. Because she is the key. What would motivate a person to pour $56,000 worth of perfume on the feet of a man? Got to ask that question. What motivates her? Now, it's more than just being grateful for the return of her brother. And, and that goes without saying. She must have been so, I mean, just, you can't even imagine the feeling, right? He's sitting right there. I can't even imagine, but even that is not enough to do what she did. It has to be more. To me, there's only one explanation for this extravagance. Mary actually believed that Jesus was the Son of God. She believed with all of her heart, utterly convinced 
that he was exactly who he said he was, the very son of God. And because of that, she does not hesitate. She doesn't go, ooh, $56,000. What am I going to do? She didn't hesitate. Lord, Lord, take the most precious thing that I own. Receive it as my pitiful sacrifice to your glory. Let it adorn your head as my king. Let it drip down your entire body to these beautiful feet which have brought peace and salvation to my home. And if you believed that that were true in that moment, you'd have done the same thing. You'd have done the very same thing. What a picture. Three things jump off the page at me when I see what it means to worship extravagantly. Three things about Mary here. Here's the first one. Worshiping Jesus extravagantly will require a sacrifice of your treasure. I know it's not popular to talk about this in church. We don't talk about it often. But if you want to worship God extravagantly, it will require a sacrifice of treasure. Again, there's such love in Mary's heart for Jesus, such gratitude for the fact that he had chosen her and her family for this act of grace. She feels an overwhelming compulsion to give something back to God. Have you ever felt that? Just in a certain moment of worship, just this overwhelming compulsion to say, Lord, I need to give something back to you. I, uh, the Spirit is, is revealing to me all that you have done for me, and I have to give something back. But how do you do that? How do, how do you give back to God? Words aren't enough, are they? It's a start, but they're not enough. So what does Mary do? She goes, I know. And she runs, and she gets the most valuable thing that she has. Her most valuable earthly treasure and she breaks it all open in front of him. A full year's worth of wages dumped out in seconds. She can't help herself. She's overwhelmed with love. Here, Lord, take all of it. Take every, shake it, every drop of my treasure. And I know it's still not enough. Not for what you've done, not for who you are. We sing this song, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Is there not something deep within you that agrees with Mary here? That desires to worship Jesus with absolute extravagance. With everything that you have. Because there's no way to measure it who he is, right? There's no way to quantify his love. We can't even do it as human beings, as creatures. To know him, to hear his voice and the word, to fellowship with him, to serve him, all of it is infinitely valuable. We don't have anything that we can bring. So devotion to Christ does come with a cost in terms of your treasure, your stuff. If he's purchased you with his blood, then you're not your own, he says, right? Everything you have comes from his hand in the first place. It all ultimately belongs to him. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Now, how you go about worshiping God with your treasure, I can't tell you what to do. That's something you've got to work out. 
in your heart, with him, with your family. You've got to figure that out. But do not neglect the fact that Jesus points to this example and says, that's good. That's so good, in fact, it should be remembered until the very end of time. Wherever the gospel is preached, tell this story. Don't neglect this story. And if you say, look, Jeff, I'm not there yet. If you're honest enough in your heart to say, you know what? I want to be there, but I'm not there yet. I don't think I could do this. Okay. It's good to be honest. Self-awareness is a really good thing, right? But let the passage challenge your heart. Is there something you love more than Jesus? Is there an adjustment you need to make in terms of your priorities? Here's the reality and the wonder of all this. If you flip this around, why would God the Father sacrifice what is most valuable to him, his one and only son, for creatures like us, for sinners like us? Has he not given lavishly for us? That, I mean, that when you think of it in those terms, it sort of puts giving in perspective, doesn't it? That's the first one. Here's the second thing you should know. Worshiping Jesus extravagantly will require you to be peculiar or unusual. <laughs> Uh-oh. Th- this one hurts a little bit, right? What you need to know is that in this story, Mary breaks a number of social taboos. She does a, a number of things that people would have said, nah, that's not ordinary. She doesn't care. <laughs> she doesn't care. she's overwhelmed by love she does not care it was it was unusual it was not unusual to wash the feet of a guest but it was very out of the ordinary to do it in the middle of the night or in the middle of the meal mary doesn't care she's just too caught up in this moment to care whether the timing works for everybody oh how often do we do this there's all these norms and standards and we can't go outside of them right She doesn't care about the timing. She doesn't care if somebody's going to judge her for this. She just loves Jesus. Washing the feet of a guest was something that was supposed to be done by a household servant, not somebody like Mary. She didn't care. She doesn't care if somebody goes, oh, that's below you. That's for the lowly people. She does not care. She wants to be at the feet of Jesus. Mary's always at the feet of Jesus. Have you noticed this? All the disciples are jockeying like, I want to be at the right hand of power. And she's like, I'm going to be down here at his feet, worshiping. She doesn't care. She doesn't stop to calculate other people's reactions. She wants to be at his feet. And that's not about her having low self-esteem or self-hatred. It is a glad submission to the one who deserves all of our worship. That's all. For a Jewish woman in that day to let her hair down in the company of men was, was, was shocking it was considered to be, have loose morals if you did that. Mary doesn't care. In that moment, she doesn't care. She's not calculating whether people are going to look down on her for this. Not only does she let her hair down, but then she dries Jesus' feet with her hair, using it like a towel. Did you catch the beautiful picture at the end of verse 3? Mary wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary has the fragrance of worship in her hair. It's spreading all through the house. And what a picture for us to consider is the fragrance of Jesus on us. If you walk into your home, is there a fragrance of Jesus there? Has it filled that house that you live in? 
Do your relationships in the church carry the fragrance of Christ? Do visitors who come to Oak Hill smell the sweet smell of the fragrance of, uh, of Christ as on us as a body? The fragrance of worship should be all around us, folks. It was on Mary. So here's the thing. When you're in the presence of God, you just don't hold back. You're not concerned about, well, people might think I'm a little unusual. It's Jesus. This is just like David. Remember David? Leaping and dancing before the Lord. Ark of the Covenant's coming into Jerusalem. And, and, and David's just, he's just overwhelmed with love for God. And he's, he's leaping and he's dancing. And what does his wife do? She's embarrassed. David doesn't care. It's okay to be unusual. It's okay. What matters most to you? Bringing Jesus the worship and devotion that he deserves or what other people think? It's an important question, right? The fear of man. It drives so much of the way we operate in the church. If any voice tells you to moderate your love for Jesus, don't listen. Don't listen. Let your worship be lavish. Let it be extravagant, even if you appear unusual to everybody else around you. Worship Jesus. Last thing. Worshiping Jesus extravagantly will require you to withstand criticism. I hate, to, I hate to say this, but it's true. Imagine how Mary must have felt in this moment. She's overwhelmed with love. She's pouring out this perfume, and it's already a male-dominated culture, right? And, and she's, she's done some things that have crossed some cultural barriers, and now Judas shouts at her, and the disciples join in. Imagine how she feels in that moment. What are you doing, woman? Does that really make sense? Is that sensible? Do you not care about the poor? Why have you wasted this? She's just trying to worship Jesus. Count, ah, man. Count on this. If you give yourself extravagantly to Jesus, you'll be criticized by a lot of people. Some of that will come from the outside the church, right? Some of it will come from unbelievers, friends, family that, that don't understand what you're doing. They can't understand it. And some of it will come from professing believers inside the church, from folks who have a certain desire to impose their preferences on the way that you worship. That will happen. Interestingly, some of that criticism will come from believers, but it will be born out of jealousy. You know why? Because secretly they wish they could worship the way you worship, but they are still beholden to cultural norms, still beholden to the applause of men, to the fear of man. All those things have them locked up and secretly, they wish they could worship with abandon like you do. I think of people who have made really hard decisions in this life. People who have walked away from lucrative business careers to go into ministry. I think of talented men and women who could do all kinds of things in the system of the world, but they choose to go to missions. They choose to, a life of poverty to go into missions. I think of families who give lavishly to the local church. They give all kinds of money to parachurch organizations. And they, they choose not to spend money on more earthly stuff. And the critics all shout, what a waste. They do. The critics say, what a waste. You're wasting your life. You're wasting your resources. It's a lie. It's a lie. There's nothing more important than your giving to the kingdom. Nothing. And trust me, for all eternity, you will not care about the car you drove on earth. You won't care. But you'll care what you stored up in heaven for the kingdom. 
This is nothing new. I had to fit a Spurgeon quote in here today. Spurgeon saw it in his day. He, he, this is so blunt. He says, when you do the best you can do from the purest motives and the Lord accepts your service, do not expect that your brethren will approve of all your actions. If you do, you'll be greatly disappointed. That's both sad and revealing. A life poured out for Christ will always seem like a total waste to many others, but we can rest assured that our worship in that way does not go unseen or unnoticed by the only one who really matters at the end of the day. And that's the opinion of God. All right. If you're wondering if Mary really was doing the right thing, look no further than verses 7 and 8. Verse 7. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone. Right? So all these guys are like, what are you doing? Jesus says, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now that's an odd phrase, right? What does it mean keep what? She's already poured out the vial. Not going to get that perfume back in. Here's what Jesus means, I think. Guys, leave Mary alone. I want her to keep this same sense of joy and wonder and devotion on the day that my, my body is put in a tomb. Let her keep it. Do not hinder her worship. Let her keep this sense of joy and worship until that day. And then he adds the reason, verse 8. For you'll always have the poor with you, but you not always have me. Now, look, don't twist this up, right? That is a statement of reality. There will always be poor on this earth because of us. Because human beings, greed and covetousness. It will always be present. But Jesus is not saying, hey, you can stop caring about the poor here. This is a statement about timing. He knows that his time is short. He, so he says, look, there will always be opportunities for the poor because precisely for this reason, they'll always be present. But I only have a week left. I'll only be with you for a short time. So in light of that fact, Mary's devotion could not have been more timely and could not have been more appropriate. Now I'm going to save verses 9 through 11 until next time because that's going to enter us into the Passion Week. For today, one last thing and then we're going to sing. One last thing and then we're going to do extended worship. This is a tough one. I want you to remember how Mary got to this place. How did Mary get to this place of wanting to worship Jesus so extravagantly? It was through pain. It was through pain. It was through the suffering and the death of her brother that brought her to this place. It was the disappointment she felt in Jesus' delay in coming to her aid that ultimately produced the love that she has when Jesus did come, when Jesus did act, when Jesus did show his authority and power. But it, hang, it came through pain. You guys probably know this quote from Oswald Chambers. He once said, whomever God uses greatly, he must wound deeply. And that's a hard thing for us, isn't it? This side of heaven, that's a hard thing. But it's true over and over again in the scriptures, the path to a deeper sense of worship comes most often through pain and brokenness. And as we know, God was committed to that principle himself. Remember, he gave more lavishly than we'll ever give back to him. Right? He, did, he doesn't ask anything of us that he isn't willing to do, for, do himself to crush his own son in order to ransom the debt that we owe for our sin. God's gift is so lavish. You know what? Some people would call the death of Christ on the cross a waste. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. It's the most lavish gift of all. 
Let me ask this question in closing. Which character in this part of the narrative are you most like? Are you like Mary, abundant in humility and love and worship? Are you like Judas? Are you hanging around the church right now to get something from God? Not to serve, not to submit your life, not to submit your treasure to him, but you want something from God. Is that your primary motivation? Are you closer to Judas than you might think? Are you most like the disciples? More caught up with church norms and church standards and sort of lukewarm towards the idea of extravagant worship? Or are you some combination of those two? Maybe, you're, maybe you fit somewhere in between those three characters. But here's the, here's the key question. If you're not like Mary yet, and I'm not, I'll be honest with you, I want to be, are you progressively growing towards that goal? Are you growing in your worship? Are you growing in your devotion, all things, everything, to Christ? That's the key question. Consider once more Paul's words from Philippians 3. This is where we started this morning. Consider how precious Paul viewed his identity in Christ. In Christ, he discovered a treasure so rich that everything he once thought was, these are the most important things in my life. Everything he thought that of. He threw it all in a dumpster when he met Christ. And he said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Are you able to say that this morning? Wherever you're at in your heart, to count all things as loss for him, all things, even that very expensive vial of perfume that you have in your house right now, the thing that you're like, no, but this is super valuable. This doesn't get touched. Would you give it all up for him? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I know I've, that was a lot, and I know I've given, given you a lot to think about. I pray the Spirit is at work, so I want you to just take a few moments and meditate on some of those things. Have a conversation with God. Bask in his fellowship this morning. Listen, don't be, don't be beat up by guilt in this. Make sure you hear that. This is not a time to beat yourself up with guilt. This is a time to seek the, the, the face of the Lord, to ask him where you go from here, and to thank him for his great love and gift to you. Take a few moments.